Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Really enjoying what you're saying about chain mail. Really like the idea. Obviously, that would work great on a one-on-one, one GM, one player thing. And I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how you want to expand that for multiple players. So I'll be looking forward to that future episode where you talk about that. Welcome to Bandits Keep. I'm Daniel. That was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. And, you know, I am not one to uh, make Jason wait. So uh, that's exactly what we're going to cover first in this episode. And then after we do that, we're going to take some calls. And uh, so let's do this. All right, let's talk about the second kind of, I think, interesting, although people that have had more experience with RPGs uh, than me can probably tell me this has been done before, but kind of interesting aspect of what I want to add to this game. And first, I want to talk about why. So one of the things that I think makes sword and sorcery as a genre different than, let's say, epic fantasy or, or other things and makes it more difficult to play in a game like D&D is that typically in sword and sorcery, you're looking at a single hero. Yes, there are groups of people, but as we've discussed many times on the podcast, you know, not everybody in that group is Conan, right? When, you, when you're playing in a group of first-level characters uh, in, let's say, BX, you know, not everybody's going to get out of there. And the, who are those characters that die? Well, those are the, the no-name characters and the henchmen and stuff like that of the Conan story, even though we don't want to think that way, right? Everybody wants to be a hero. We're the Avengers, right? We're not uh, uh, whatever. So, okay, the obvious solution would be, well, you should just play this one-on-one then, right? Because typically you have one hero, or maybe sometimes two, right? you got Farfoot and the Grey Mouser is a good example of a team. So you could do that, right? And I think that's that will be the aim. So this game would be designed that it could very easily played be played with one referee and one player. But the ideal, ideal, <laughs> the normal, I guess, standard playing group these days, in most cases, is three to four players plus a GM. I think that's pretty standard. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, it's kind of what people go for. So how do we work that out if we have, you know, a group that we're already running with and we want to play this game? So... The two players would be the simplest, right? You've got your Farford and the Grey Mouse, so you have two heroes, right? Two heroes can adventure together. They can have joint goals. They can have separate goals. Um, that can all work out. Uh, the other option for two players is to, and this will be the option for three players as well, is to have one player play what are essentially the henchmen. Now, this is probably not going to work out for long-term games in the sense that, like, you don't always want to be the henchman, um, but... You could, let's say, rotate through and on, you know, one one game session, somebody will play their hero and the other player will play the henchman of that hero. And that could be anywhere from one to 50 to 100, could be a thousand men that they're playing, right? They're basically rolling dice. They certainly could give some personality to a main henchman or whatever, but essentially they're playing what you would consider like first levels, right? They're playing people that if they get hit once, they're going to drop that kind of thing. Because remember, there's no real classes, right, in, in, in uh, chainmail. So it's like if you arm your henchmen all with plate armor, they're pretty tough, right? And if you arm in pole arms, if you arm them with daggers and loincloths, they won't be so tough. Uh, the heroism of the hero, I guess, is what kind of separates that. But for most people, almost every combatant, unless they're fantastical or heroic, are going to go down in one hit anyways. So you've got one player playing, well, let's just say Conan for the... <laughs> for the effect and then the other one uh, is playing let's say their 12 uh mercenary you know uh, group that uh riders let's say when he was like part of the desert riders right so the 12 desert riders so now you can go out and do this adventure these the player that's not playing the hero 
can maybe take on a personality of the, of one of the riders so that you can have you know social interactions and stuff like that with Conan. But when it comes to combat, they're going to be rolling all the dice for the henchmen, or you know perhaps occasionally one of the henchmen will go off and do something um, special, and that's totally fine. Just they just won't be heroic, I guess. And of course, they won't gain favor or uh, levels, as if we want to call it that. Am I, that's probably not going to be the ultimate word, <laughs> but we'll call it levels for now, uh, based on what I was talking about last time. At least I say that maybe they could, right? If you have a, let's say you're just starting and you have two players and one wants to play the Conan hero, the other one's playing their men, and then one of their men does something exceptional, right? And and uh, you might say, you know what, we're going to elevate this guy to hero and you can play him as one of your characters. But anyways, that's a whole other thing. So anyways, the idea would be you're playing with one uh, hero in one kind of group of associates, and that group is run by a, another player. Now, again, this works with up to three players because you could have Farfred the Grey Mouser and the Desert Riders, right? And that totally works really fine. I think the place where we're going to have a problem, if you want to call it that, would be if you want to have four players because I don't think three heroes works. I think as soon as you start hitting the three-hero mark, I mean, honestly, even the two heroes with a whole group can become a little bit much, I think. Uh, you know, you don't often see Farford and the Grey Mouse are running uh, large groups of men. But, you know, it, I think it can still work pretty easily. So what do we do with the fourth player? Well, there is in Chainmail. And again, this would be it, it, the way I would run the game and the way I'm going to suggest that it's run is this is kind of the last option. This is the fourth player option. I wouldn't want, at my table anyways, the way I see the game being run or the way I see the game growing, I wouldn't want this to be something a single player would play, uh, but that is a wizard. So most likely a seer, which is if you read Chainmail, it's basically the wizard scaled down. If we look at their uh, their fantasy fighting table, the seer, which is a wizard minus four, I believe, I'm just kind of walking around talking, I don't have my book in front of me, um, works out to be almost equal on the fantasy combat to the hero. They uh, fight as two armored foot. So in other words, it would take two simultaneous hits to take them down. So they're not as tough as the hero, but they're always armored foot, right? They don't have to wear armor. They have the wizardy protection. So, you know, I actually kind of cross-referenced the numbers and it's pretty balanced. A, a, um, a hero with, uh, with kind of a heavy foot type weapon uh, is close to... Uh, very close in uh, combat prowess to the wizard being armored foot, being only two armored foot. So, but I don't, the things that I would remove, because of course the, wiz the wizard slash seer can throw fireballs and lightning bolts, which are devastating. I don't think those fit the sword and sorcery genre very well. So I feel like as a player, unless you were going to play like at the level of wizard for some reason, maybe if you were doing superhero as your hero, you might allow that. But I think I would remove that. They do say that wizards can turn invisible and see in the dark. That's a basic uh, power that they have. I think I'll probably uh, put some kind of limit on how how often they can do that in the game um, or possibly make it a roll four, as I'm about to talk about. So if you look at Chainmail uh, the way that uh, I've run it so far, um, when I've run it as Chainmail, I haven't used this part that's kind of optional, I guess which is the wizards can have spells beyond uh, just uh, just the fireball and lightning bolt. They can have spells like uh, like uh, cloud kill or darkness and stuff like that that could cover battlefields. The way these spells work is they are, so I think Jason will like this, you've got to roll for them, you know? Uh, so, and it's a really cool system, I think, 
you essentially roll um, the dice based on the level of the, the caster, like a seer versus a magician, against the uh, difficulty, what they call it, of the, uh, the spell. So and you've got three results. One is that the spell doesn't go off at all. One is that it goes off, but not until the next turn. And the other one is that it goes off immediately. So this makes spellcasting a little more dangerous. It keeps the wizard, uh, or seer in this case, uh, a little bit more able to combat. So they don't, you don't have that uh, problem, which I don't think is a problem, but that's a side note, that uh, magic users are too weak. In other games, you can play you know, uh, a magic user that can fight, you know, uh, however you want to flavor them up. But again, I think that would be the fourth character I would add, or third if nobody really wants to play the, the henchman as a group. Although, personally, I think that's really fun. But anyways, um, because I don't think that having a wizard in your group or a seer is going to be the most sword and sorcery thing in the world. I think it probably uh, starts to push a little bit away from that, um, especially if you're using Conan as your, your basis. Although, if you look at Conan, the Conan movies, like Conan the Destroyer, of course, he had a, a wizard in his... In, in fact, both movies, there was a wizard. Um, so yeah, I think that that might be a way to play this game, right? To keep the sword and sorcery feel, to have the hero be the hero, to have the secondary character uh, player, the secondary player play secondary characters keeps it as a single hero type game, or having two heroes with your Fafford and Grey Mouser thing. And again, if you really had all, you know, four people playing all at once, you could do, um, you could do a wizard. In fact, I'm just thinking of it now. You could, if you had two heroes and you and you, you had two other players that were willing, they could. You could do two heroes, and each of them could have their own little band of mercenaries. So, you know, you could get quite a little group going on. Because remember, this game is not. There will be, I'm sure, times that there will be dungeon crawls. I mean, you're going to be able to play the game any way you want. I'm sure. I love a dungeon crawl. I'm a dungeon crawl person, so I'm sure I will have times where temples will be raided. You know, ancient ruins will be explored. All that goodness going under the ground. But I think, too, this game, what's going to make it different than just running OD&D with Chainmail. Um, oh, to be honest, though, running OD&D with Chainmail, we're leaning in this direction already, is that it's going to go back a little bit more to the wargaming part. You know, you're going to want to have men with you. So when you are playing, you know, the game, if there's two players and you've got one hero and, you know, 12 mercenaries or whatever you want to call them, that is going to be very good, probably better dice-wise, like statistic-wise, than having just two heroes. Uh, yeah, the the henchmen will fall faster, but at the same time, uh, having all those dice up front are probably going to help you a lot. And also, to me, again, that adds this epicness to it. When you when you watch these sword and sorcery movies or read uh, the the stories, you know, there's always the the group of guys, and then somebody gets an arrow in the chest and drops, or a tiger jumps out and rips one's head off. And you can have that, right? It's hard to have in a game like D&D, let's say, where you've got four player characters and you really don't want, I mean, not that I, player characters don't die, but you don't want this like thing where, oh, he's dead. Because then you're rolling up a new character, you're introducing him to the group. When, you, when you're running 12 henchmen, if one dies, you know, you just you play another one. <laughs> and of course, you always have it so that the main henchman that you're playing, you know, it's part armor, right? The last guy to die is always the one that you're playing. So that's just how you do it, right? or you can switch it up. You know, if, obviously, if you specifically send that one to do something and they die, then that's the way it is. But, anyways, uh, I'm not suggesting it to be like a funnel, but I am saying it's a way that we could play with, let's say, two players. And this is the first way I'm going to test it, actually, with one hero and 
one person playing a, a group of anywhere from one, I mean, it could be one, to, you know, 12, 15, 20, 100, 1,000, you know, men. And I think that could be really, really fun. So that's kind of how I'm looking at that. So with the idea that you are trying to establish yourself in the world through position, through recruiting men, through gaining arms and armor, um, this kind of ties into that. And again, I think if you were running a campaign, you could have, let's say, four players and everybody could run a hero, their own hero, and they just don't always adventure together. You know, you mix it up. It's not always this tight party of adventurers that are adventuring together. In one session, you might have uh, two of the players play their heroes, another one play uh, a, a group of mercenaries that are with the heroes, and another one play uh, a seer slash wizard. And in another session, you might have only one player play a hero and all three play other things, you know. Like if you did have like a, one hero did have behind them 300 men, maybe each of the, uh, you know, other players plays the hundred men, right? They play like a, essentially a captain. Um, so yeah, I think that it could be really, really interesting. So uh, let me know what you think. I, this is kind of my basis for the game between uh, leveling up the way I said, and this, this will be kind of the, the, the typical way the game will be played. And um curious what people think, if they think that's uh, something to be interested in, if it seems completely crazy, if there's other games that do this already that I'm just, I think Jason's mentioned ours magically, you, you, you get to, you have like your main person and you have a bunch of other people. I think this would be a little different because you would generally be playing your main person all the time and another player would play your henchman. But you know, that's a, that's, I guess what makes it a little interesting. So let me know what you guys think. I'm just going to do a quick segment here uh, as I'm working through the idea of how I'm going to do the, the quote levels or fame or how we want to call it. Uh, as noted, the first, your character would start as a wanderer. They would start with nothing except maybe a sword or some kind of weapon that suits them. If they are ever dropped back down to wanderer, they don't get that sword or whatever. The, the, when you get back down, drop down to that level, you're basically loincloth, you know, maybe dagger or whatever whatever suits the, the, the fiction, right? As a freebooter, um, you would have access. And when I say access, I mean ready access. I don't mean a single sword. I mean like you have enough gold on hand or friends or you're working for a mercenary company so that you have access to readily martial weapons or up to 12 of your own men or light horses. So this means that, you know, if you are, for instance, a wanderer and you, you get access to martial weapons, let's say by joining a group, now all of a sudden you're a freebooter, right? Or if you somehow, you know, save this group of people and they join you and now up, up to 12 of them, you are a freebooter. Or if you get some horses, you know, because horses are very powerful. Um, when you become an adventurer, you have all three. So martial weapons and 12 men and light horses. So if you think about it like this, let's just kind of quickly go through how this might play out. Let's say that you're, you're, you're a group of adventurers and you have, you're an adventurer, I should say, and you have a, you got your 12 men, you've got horses, you have access to weapons, um, you know, you've got a supply or whatever, and you have been uh, protecting, you know, aka taking protection money uh, from a local village, uh, you know, to keep away the, any, you know, problems. And you go by and they're complain. they complain. A cult group has formed, they have been causing problems, maybe you've kind of been ignoring, ignoring them because it's, it hasn't really been an issue, but now they've taken uh, some of the the members of the members of the town. So they're kind of demanding that you do something, and uh, somehow it slips in the conversation as well that the cult 
worships this uh, golden statue covered in rubies. Well, not only are you (laughs) going to help the people because, you know, hey, that's your duty, right? Or whatever. Um, But, ooh, a golden statue. With that, I could buy, you know, more men or more equipment or heavy horses or something, right? So I'm going to go do this. So you charge into this place to 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 fight the cultists at ten, and let's say there's fifty cultists, and you the cult leader ends up being a fantastical creature. It turns into a werewolf. So, so let's so so you're in fantasy combat uh, as the hero fighting this werewolf. Your men are fighting the cultists, and you die. Right? You lose the fantasy combat. So how does this work exactly? Well, you've got to look at the fiction and what's going on. Because you have a lost, you need to drop down to the next level, which means that you no longer will have all three of those resources. Uh, in fact, to be on that level, you only need to really have one. So if your men were winning, right, against the cultists, you might wake up with the one of your henchmen looking at you. Uh, he throws down, um, you know, uh, your sword or, or he points to your sword and uh, equipment all on one horse. And he says to you, uh, clearly you're not the leader that uh, we thought you were. We're going back to the town to get our collection money and taking the statue. Um, you are going to take your horse and ride off in shame, you know, or however you're going to play that out. So now you've got the horse, you've got equipment, right? So you, but you don't have all three. So you're no longer an adventurer. You are now a, uh, a freebooter, right? So you've dropped down in level and that's in the fiction, how it, how it worked out. Now it could be, the men were getting their butts handed to them, right? So let's say when your character goes down, your men were losing. Now, instead, you wake up, you're staked out, um, you know, naked, stripped of all weapons, stripped of everything. You, you're you covered in blood. You're staked out there for the animals to pick at. And you hear a rustling in the woods and you're, um, you're thinking, oh, great, an animal's going to come. You're trying to break your bonds, whatever. And then out from the woods come two of your most loyal men. They uh, They cut you free. Uh, and, and say, uh, the cultists have uh, taken over that village and burned it down because of what we did. Uh, we need to escape. Uh, come with us. And they kind of help you away. And now you've got a couple of men and you maybe have weapons, right? Because maybe they collected some weapons off the dead body. But you don't have the horses anymore and you don't have enough men. So you are no longer an adventurer. You are a freebooter. So you, what you're going to need to do, it's not going to be, I mean, it could be sometimes you don't know, right? It could be some epic battle where it just ends and you'll have to figure it out in the fiction. But I, again, I want to model this after kind of the Conan stories where like a lot of times a story ends and then it just picks up and stuff's happened clearly. Either they say what's happened or just kind of implied what happened or whatever. So that's kind of my idea of how you would quote lose a level. The way you would gain it obviously would be exactly the opposite. Like if you knew, if you had beat the cultists and you got this statue and you, you pried the rubies off and you, uh, you know, melted down the gold and you went to a large city and you were able to, let's say, hire in another X number of men. I haven't set that stand, that number yet, though. Set X, by X number of uh, larger horses or whatever. And now you may maybe have bumped up to the next level. And that's basically how it would work. So in theory, you're never going to be able to go all the ways from, you know, being, let's say, uh, we'll just call it levels for now, being like a fourth level, uh, you know, in this in this game, all the way back down to zero. Um, that being said, um, you know, it's got to be logical in the fiction. If it makes sense that you would lose it all, then that can happen. And, and it might even happen in the moment, right? It could be that, that yet yeah, you wake up naked or whatever tied to the stakes and you think you're alone and you kind of, you get free 
And as you're wandering through the woods, you find the, a small encampment of a few of your men that got away. Something like that, right? It doesn't have to be right away that they saved you. you. You know, whatever works in the fiction, you can work with that. The way I would probably do it is work with the player character. I wouldn't necessarily um, just make it up. I like to play with the the idea of having uh, players have, you know, a lot of input and stuff like this. So uh, speaking of input, let me know what you guys think. Does that make sense? Um, does that make it sound even more clear or less clear? <laughs> what do you guys think so far about that part? I'm starting to get it down on paper, well, computer, but I'm I'm just dancing ideas around in my head. Part of it really is where do you set the levels? You know, what what is it? What 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 makes you get to the next level and how that will work? So uh, I'm working on that now, and I'll be back soon. Okay, let's take some calls. We've got some calls from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, from Ricardo, who pronounces his name much cooler than I can, and also from Rob from Down the Heap. So let's see what they got to say. Well, to respond to what John is saying, um, I don't know that you need to use the magic supplement. I do. I have played in ICRPG games that feel quite heroic, so I disagree with you there, Daniel. But Best Left Buried, eh, not impressed. I have not looked at the new version. I didn't back it based on the shit show the first version was. Um, we, I ran it, have run, played in it, and it just wasn't done. The author had talked about, we saw on social media about how he released an unfinished game to let people find the problems with it or something like that. I forget the exact wording, but yeah, Best Left Buried. It's an interesting idea, but it, it's one of these things where I think you take the idea, yeah, dungeon crawling should be dangerous and horrible in a horror setting and players should be scarred by it. And you import that idea and feeling into your game, not use those crappy mechanics. Yeah, I don't, again, I don't have the magic supplement and I haven't played enough ICRPG to really judge. But to me, looking at it in the few games I've played, it basically just felt like D&D simplified. So that's not really what I'm going for. Um well, it felt like 5e D&D simplified. What I'm going for is OD&D simplified, if that's even possible. So maybe that's why I don't see that. But, you know, I'll look back at it. I, like I said, I have the main rule book. Um, as far as Beth Le- Best Left Buried, I actually, because it looked really interesting, I backed one of the adventures as a Kickstarter. And then when I got it, I realized that I didn't uh, have the game. So I actually went out and, and did buy the game, but I have yet to run it. So... Uh, I don't really know, but my idea with that, at least as far as I can see, is, again, seems to be the opposite of what I want. I don't want people to be scared to go into the dungeons. I mean, yes, Conan's, uh, you know, skin prickles when he when he feels, uh, you know, magic, but he doesn't turn around and run from it. And I, so I don't want any kind of terror mechanic or that kind of stuff in the game itself. I mean, obviously, people can run however they want. That's just not how I see it. Maybe I'm misinterpreting what uh, what's being said, but that's... At least on a as a wide swath, that's how I see those two systems. Again, maybe the new version of Best Left Buried fixes all those problems. It's very possible, but the original version, I wouldn't play it again. As far as oh, Theater of the Mind isn't heroic. The most heroic, the most sword and sorcery games I played, the games that have felt the most heroic have been Theater of the Mind using Barbarians of Lemuria, actually. So, yeah, my experience is counter to John's. Although I, I don't know that Barbarians of Lemuria is a system would appeal, appeal to you, Daniel. It might, but it but it definitely were the... It, it evoked that feeling. Now, mind you, that was pulpy feeling, you know, where the system let me, 
let my barbarian pick up a a bar bench and, and weld it as a huge club, knocking people over. And, you know, the system let you do things like that, which really felt great. So I stopped in mid-sentence, well, in your mid-sentence, Daniel, so I don't know what else you're going to say. But in response to John's thing and the idea of placement and combat and all, I mean, what he's talking about sounds like, like, say, Pathfinder or 3.5, where it really does matter where you're positioned because you might trigger special abilities and a tax of opportunity and trigger other people and do those cool team moves and stuff like that. But as far as D&D goes, basic D&D, or honestly, even ICRPG, yeah, it doesn't matter. Because you're, you're, you're not talking about squares, you're talking about maybe zones. You know, ICRPG is near, close, and far. You know, you're, you're fighting in zones, you're not fighting in squares or miniatures. You don't use miniatures in that game. You, you know, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Daniel. I agree with you about the picking up a bench and using it as a weapon and stuff like that. That to me, that's super heroic. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that, I mean, I'm not saying you can't do in a miniatures combat, but I don't think you need miniatures to the, in the dungeon master to put on the table, a miniature for you to do that stuff. Now, if I understand barbarians of Lemuria correctly, you use like hero points and stuff to do those things. I mean, maybe not for that move. That's actually why I like fantasy combat, right? Cause it's the same kind of thing, except you don't have to worry about the hero points. It's just that only certain people can do it. So yeah, I think to me, which is funny, right? The the most theater of the mind, the most we'll call it narrative for lack of a better word, part of chainmail, the fantasy combat is to me probably the most heroic. The part where you can really explain whatever you're doing, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't think positioning matters, and I'm and I'm definitely much more of a uh, uh, I call it Gygaxian uh, Malay, where everything's kind of scattered and happening all at once. I'm not in the you stand right next to this person and fight them. Uh, I don't know what's more realistic or non-realistic. I'm not going to get into that conversation because I honestly don't know. I don't think I answered your question. I like the idea of rolling first and narrating late, saying what you're going to do or saying what you're going to attempt to do, roll, and then narrate what ha- actually happened. That That's my preference. Viking Death Squad, as I talked about on my podcast, now they have the primer in there or the um, toolkit. I forget what it's called because I'm tired and I'm driving home from work. But if you get by the PDF of Viking Death Squad from DriveThruRPG, you also get the, the basic skeleton of Viking Death Squad, seven pages, with all the metal and the end of the world stripped out of it. It's just the dice mechanics. It's just the, like say, the skeleton. And you can build any genre game, anything out of that. And that, that bare-bones system you might be interested in, Daniel, to look at for you could easily do sword and sorcery off that. Yeah, I got to put in my pre-order for that. Thank you for reminding me. I was waiting till the U.S. store opened. Um, definitely going to support it. I like to support Runehammer in general. Like I said, I'm not a, a big ICRPG person. Maybe somebody can someday run it for me in a way that makes me love it. But I don't know. It just doesn't do anything for me personally. I, I can see the how it's good. It's just not a good game that I like, if you will. Just like I can see how. Cthulhu is good, but it's just not a good game I like. Our Pathfinder is good. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not a huge ICRPG person, but this Viking Death Squad seems really interesting. And, of course, I'm always interested in seeing what people come up with. I just think it's very, very cool that we can take these, the very basic concepts of the role-playing game and, you know, the role-playing part of it, and also the basic concepts of what came from wargaming, right, and create all these awesome mechanics as this uh, hobby keeps growing. Hey, Daniel. Uh, Ricard here. 
Uh, I got a few questions regarding your last episode, which was really enlightening, to be honest. Uh, Chainmail Bikini is one of the best RPG names I've ever heard, I think. So you talked about how fighters are just fighters, right? And this is a very uh, BX, Chainmail, OD&D kind of thing, where there aren't any archetypes or, or subclasses. How do you differentiate between fighters in different playthroughs? You know, imagine you're a player that really just likes playing fighters. Um, are there mechanics in place where they can be different? I mean, regarding that you have the same damage for every weapons as well. Um, just curious about that. That is a great question. And if you are <laughs> of the type that wants to build the most powerful character, this is not going to be a very satisfying answer. Um, and I actually made a video about this. Uh, you, I generally differentiate characters in the older school, we'll call it D&D, because honestly, there's not a whole lot of mechanical differentiation, especially at low levels. Um, I differentiate them by how they, they role play, obviously how I role play them, but also by the gear that I pick for them. Now, granted, you roll randomly for gold, so you might not even have enough gold to get what you want. But, you know, I can make a choice to have, let's say, a longbow and leather armor instead of plate mail and a shield and sword, right? Even though mechanically, plate mail, shield, and a sword is probably going to be a better option, especially for dungeon crawling. Having a longbow and leather might make me feel more like a Robin Hood type character or something, right? So you can make that differentiation by that. And then also, of course, if you are rolling playing BX and you happen to roll a high dexterity and let's say a lower strength, like dexterity is your higher stat, but you don't want to play a thief, then that's exactly what you would do. You would go, well, you know, I don't want to play a thief uh, because I sometimes want to run forward and fight, or maybe I want to wear plate mail armor later on or whatever reason you, you, you don't want to play a thief. So you decide you're going to play a fighter and you just give yourself leather armor and a bow. And you give yourself, you, you, with your high dexterity, you're going to get bonuses to hit. And you will progress through the attack charts a little faster as a fighter. But yeah, unfortunately, um, which is weird to me, honestly, the way it's set up in OD&D, because there, there are not a lot of classes, fighters really do feel different than clerics, which are basically just holy fighters, right? And, and magic users who are basically, uh, you know, not fighters at all in a lot of ways. So yeah, but in, in a game like the XRO, I see there, it is really hard to differentiate them. But I think that, in fact, I had this conversation with somebody recently, and they were saying that they always give some special power or ability to a character at first level to make them feel special. And I kind of was opposed to that. I think the way you role play is what should make your character special, not a plus one to hit. But, you know, if, if that helps, you know, uh, characters at the table and somebody says, hey, I want to play a ranger that's bow heavy, you might say, okay, well, if you want to be a ranger, then you can have, you know, that's a bow type ranger. You can uh, have a bonus whenever you shoot with your bow. Maybe allow, the, maybe allow them to use their strength bonus for their missile attack, which, you know, again, is breaking the rules. But, hey, this is, again, a conversation before the game, not in the middle. And But say, but in exchange for that, you can never wear armor heavier than chain. So we've just created on the spot a ranger class. The ranger can wear chainmail armor only. Gets a bonus, can use their uh, strength bonus for uh, two hit, not damage, two hit with the bow instead of their dexterity, and you're golden, right? You just made a class right there on the spot. You didn't need to have all kinds of subclasses and books and stuff, and that might work for your world, you know, or some other tweak of that. Anyways, that's the long and short of it. Um, hopefully that helps. I think the comparison you made between levels giving things to the character or things giving levels to the character made it quick for me. 
You can have a fixed mechanic for it with gold equaling XP, but reputation going in tandem with levels makes it makes so much sense in a heroic-styled game, right? Killing the five orcs in the wilderness isn't enough. You have to cut off their hands or make a, a ear necklace and bring that back as proof, which reminds me of like uh, the Witcher books and the games, of course, where the witchers would tie the heads of the monsters they hunted to the back of their horse, and they would bring that back as proof of their deeds so they could get paid. It was part of a contract. Uh, it's kind of like if if a if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to to hear it fall, does it actually fall? Right? Did, did it actually fall down? Very interesting. Thanks. So, w- uh, just one last question I have is that you mentioned that when uh, in your game in Chinmail Bikini, for now, uh, characters drop to zero HP. You like they aren't defeated. They are defeated, but not killed. Right. So I'm wondering if you can just be defeated over and over again in in fiction, or is there a mechanical, like non-fictional way where your where your character just died, right? Like you take too much damage, you have to die. Do, are you going to put something like that in place, or are you just going to allow players to like uh, fall into extreme poverty and uh, have to sweep in the stables, for example, until like they die of starvation or something? This is a very good question and one that <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned it in the example. Hopefully the example helped. But um, so th- briefly, if you are at the wanderer level, so you've lost your reputation, you're, you're, you're kind of at the low point in your, your, your life. If you then risk life and limb and die, you just fade away, you know, into history with nobody really remembering you. So, yeah, you die. Um, if you are, let's say, adventurer, right? So theoretically, if you go down, you should just drop to a uh, freebooter, like I said, but something happens that should actually kill you. Like there's just no way you can explain in the fiction or in the world that you could survive that. And then I think it's fair to have that be the case. And I do think that's going to be one of those things I'm going to put a clause in if I didn't already say that. And that's going to be up to the player and the, and the, and the GM to referee to figure out. Like if, if the, if the referee's like, yeah, man, you know, this uh, purple worm just swallowed you. You know, there's just no way, you know, uh, that you could survive this, you know, then the, the player might be like, okay, or the player might be like, well, you know, but oh, what, what if the purple worm, you know, when it, you know, makes waste, I, I come out, <laughs> I don't know, you know, if it works in that world, and that's the kind of world you want to run, then that's cool. But I do think that, yes, there, there will be that, that situation where, you know, you fall into the pit of lava, and you burn up and die then there's no way to, to live through that kind of thing. I, I think that can happen and um, just probably shouldn't, right? Because the hero is, is most commonly going to go down in some kind of fantastic combat or some kind of massive battle. So it's usually not going to be a situation where that there's no way they could survive, right? It's like if, if you rush into battle with your men and you just get overrun, you can wake up in the battlefield later, bruised and battered, they left you for dead, Right. Or if you are fighting some kind of fantastical beast, it could knock you off the cliff and you could like get caught in a tree or something on the way down. And it just thinks you're dead, right? Or you could fall into water and, you know, get washed up on shore. Whether or not these things are realistic, they're definitely things that happen in stories. So I think that's where I would put it. You kind of build yourself a little bit more plot armor the more you've achieved in, in the game. And that's essentially what you're getting, right? Because your abilities aren't getting any better. Unlike, let's say, a D&D game where you get more hit points or you know you get harder to kill for that reason here you don't you don't get that so 
um, you're going to essentially be on a, a, a seesaw <laughs> as of an effect of going up and then, you know, losing everything, then going back up and losing everything, et cetera, until, uh, you know, if you're smart, eventually you'll retire the character when they, when they get to be king, right, or something to that effect. So, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and one I'm definitely dancing around in my head. Um, what happens if the character should just die even though they're a bit higher level? I honestly think most times we can narrate through it, but if it just can't be done, then yeah, I would say they should die. And I, I will, in fact, put some kind of clause um, into the game for that, you know, for people to to take take upon themselves. And I am going to put, I'll put right here for people that don't like this, I'm certainly going to do what many RPGs do at the very beginning, take these rules and use them how you want, you know, <laughs> you know, because I feel like this is going to be one of those things where there's going to be parts of this people just aren't going to like. Maybe somebody will be like, no, I don't like that. You're dead, you're dead. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I have no problem with that at all. I just like the idea of trying to create or simulate a uh, set of stories like this, like Conan or Fopper the Great Mouse or where they just seem to always figure out a way to survive, even if they end up in the street sweeping the barns or, you know, having to, 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 uh, to carry water from the river, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, they always find some way to get through. So anyways, thanks. But I like this idea that you have of the, the different stages the character goes through you know if you having this plot armor or something where you just get knocked back down to the the rung below if you are defeated your reputation suffers i don't know if this i mean it will be really interesting to see how it all evolves and stuff i really want to hear about how magic will be handled and how like you point out at the end how you're going to deal with multiple characters because yeah the literature seems to focus mainly on a main protagonist and maybe a sidekick or two but the sidekicks often like an elric often are <laughs> doomed to die very quickly so uh it'll be interesting to see how you're gonna do a workaround or you know accommodate the more standard fantasy play one more i too would like to have a campaign at some point that is really heavy swords and sorcery and i'd always kind of planned to use the stormbringer first edition rule set for that and and just have it like in the young kingdoms of moorcock and stuff but then i supported the hyperborea third edition by jeff Tolanian and was thinking i was going to use that but the, yeah what you're what you're uh laying out here sounds pretty intriguing i'm not sure if it's something that i'd be able to uh, convince my players of because I'm not sure uh, mechanically if the if the characters will feel very different it sounds like it's more based on what you put into it narratively and I'm not sure if my players will be would be into that or not so yeah if you have some actual plays and stuff that will be helpful too to see what you're going for but I might have to buy chainmail now see ya Okay, last one, I promise. I do think it's really interesting to think about using a war game as a basis for, you know, like the, the skeleton for the, the game uh, rather than just using something that was designed as an RPG. I think that really does open up the possibilities for having these different styles of combat with more and more combatants and stuff. That's, that's really appealing to me on some level. And the swords and sorcery thing, yeah, I totally think it's it's 
mainly about the motivations of the characters. I'm bored to death of saving the world. I'm not interested in that at all. I, I want to have more of a, um, a low kind of character thing. Um, the other thing I think of when, with Swords and Sorcery is the, the setting. And to me, for some reason, it always has to be either really weird or like a Near East Mesopotamia kind of feel. Um, or both. All right, see ya. Okay, well, lots of good <laughs> things to think about there. Um, thanks, Rob. Well, okay, so I'll try to handle them as I can think of it. So the magic is going to be very interesting, right? Because in Swords and Sorcery, typically your hero is not going to be engaging with the magic very much. And as I said, you could do a magic user, seer, wizard type of character in the campaign. But I do think that's going to be one of those things you want to do as a last bet, um, as opposed to, you know, uh, having it be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to play a seer as my character, the very first character in the campaign. I, I think you really do want to keep the magic to a minimum. And I feel like one of the things and something I'm going to work on is going to be, you know, bad guys are going to use magic. So you know, demons, uh, that stuff like that, you know, because in, in Conan's stories, right, when he does in, encounter the supernatural, it's usually some kind of weird, I mean, for lack of a better word, God type thing that people are worshiping, and it's just bizarre, and, and almost always like one-off, right? So some kind of generator, maybe that I'll, I'll incorporate in the game that allows you to just make enemies that are singular. So, you know, this frog god or whatever, right? <laughs> it's always one to fall back on, right? This giant toad that uh, that the people worship, right, might be an enemy. But then you might also have some kind of cultist where they do use some kind of like blood sacrifice magic or whatever. So I do want to keep it as vague as possible because I feel like there's different levels of engagement that people want to have. Uh, you know, if you think about something like the Kakosa supplement, you know, he went really deep into like all these rituals and like how human sacrifice was used. And that's very sword and sorcery, um, but it turned a lot of people off. And, and I think part of that was that I don't think people understood that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm misunderstanding it was that that stuff wasn't meant to be for the player characters. You know, that was like what the bad guys were doing. Um, but anyways, that's a that's a totally off topic. So, yeah, I think magic is going to be one of the trickier ones uh, as a character. Um, I think that if I allow or allow, right, if I decide to put in the game uh, the magic using character, the way I think I'm thinking about doing it, um, the magic in Chainmail is pretty basic. Like there's, uh, I think there's Cloud Kill, um, and of course there's uh, Fireball and Lightning Bolt, which I'm going to take out, as I mentioned, um, as far as spells go. I think the rest of the spells are all really like, you know, moving earth or doing some kind of hallucinatory, uh, you know, a terrain, stuff like that of the spells. So they're not going to be the kind of spells like D&D spells. They're really going to be for battles, which makes sense since, you know, <laughs> she knows a war game. Um, so they won't be like your typical, like, charm person or whatever. Although that could exist for sure, but that's not going to be the kind of thing that I'm going to have for magic. And as far as magic items are concerned, they'll probably end up being very specific magic items that are used for very specific things. I don't see you know, people collecting uh, just the random magic sword. I think if there is a magic sword, it will be a massive quest to get it. And, and perhaps that might even be one of the very high level goals, you know, that could be one of the objects, like to become king, right? You need Excalibur, right? Uh, so that kind of thing, right? You could have, uh, or right, Elric even, right? He got the Stormbringer, right? He got that 
as as a mean part partially as a means to keep power. I think I it's been a while since I read it, but I think that's like your magic swords and stuff like that that might exist. I feel like that's how they'd come to play. I definitely definitely see the the issue for like a better word uh, that the characters will not feel very different mechanically. They're not going to. <laughs> so I think that will end up being a either a really big selling point for somebody that just wants to have. Uh, a blank slate to create whatever personality type or whatever they want to do for their character um, versus, uh, you know, having like, oh, I'm a ranger or I'm a paladin or I'm, you know, a, a wizard. Well, I guess you could be a wizard, but a druid. Um, you could certainly be those things, right? As a hero, you, you can be any of those things. And you could, you could make your hero a druid. You could be like, he's a druid. You know, he's not going to have magic, but he'd still be a hero as far as hero is concerned. Um, but yeah, mechanically, Everybody's the same, which, again, it might not be for everyone. That might actually be the part of the game that would be the least appealing, maybe in a long-term campaign with a group, is that everybody is going to be mechanically the same. The only thing that's going to change is what you do, right? So you're going to, it has to be very, uh, you have to be very proactive, I think, as a player, if you want to, uh, to have certain things, right? I mean, you can choose, you can choose to go after, let's say, horses right away so that you're, you can become a horseman, right? Or you can choose to go after a, a group of, uh, you know, uh, bandits that, that use bows, let's say, so you can be Robin Hood, right? But again, that ends up being how you're creating the game. And uh, I think that open-endedness is going to be kind of the strength of it, but also the part that's going to be hard for some people um, to fully embrace. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of where I'm experimenting. And the final part about the 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 kind of the world. Uh, yeah, I agree. It, it's usually, I always picture for sword and sorcery kind of this like near Eastern, you know, with, with lots of like plains and deserts and uh, weird, like ancient ruins that come from before time. And people are, you know, speculate about where they came from and people worship them and, you know, these kind of things and large swaths of land with where nobody lives either because it's just impossible to farm there or, or there's just not a huge population, you know, um, and I think that's kind of the, the kind of setting that, that I would probably play it in myself. I don't plan on making any kind of setting for this. I, I want to keep it as simple as possible, at least at first, to get it in people's hands. That's why I may, you know, keep, again, the magic just, you know, my first pass at it is really just taking all the things in Chainmail and just kind of manipulating them slightly and kind of recreating them into a game um, so that um, so that it can be played. <laughs> Uh, you know, adding depth to the magic and stuff, I think, is things I'll add later. But who knows? We'll, we'll see what inspires me to do what and when. Um, but yeah, I've never played Stormbringer. Uh, but Astonishing Swordsman and Swords with Hypeboard is really cool. The thing is, and, and I do think it's great, and I do think that it has, you know, a Sword and Sorcery feel versus, let's say, uh, some other games. You know, because there's no elves and dwarves and stuff running around, and the monsters are a little bit more monstery. Um, but... I think the mad the level of magic in it is is a little high for my personal um, take on you know how I like to play what I what I call sword and sorcery. I'm much more Conan than Elric, you know, <laughs> personally. But you know that comes down to uh, to to what you're looking for. But I love Stars and Swordsman and Sorcerers, or now called Hypebore. I've been running that campaign for well over a year, and I will continue because it's one of my favorite games. Um, so yeah, it's an awesome game. So yeah, we'll see where this thing grows. Thanks for calling in, Rob, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, then. Thanks for everyone who called in. If you called in about the last episode that was about Chainmail and it's not played here, 
then I will get to that on the next one because I'm trying to get a little bit ahead here. Um, I think now Rob's got me thinking that I might want to, at least in a vague sense, start to get the magic figured out. Um, I think that that's going to be important. Uh, magic will be, uh, you know, sword and sorcery, right? Sorcery is part of it. So uh, as I said, I don't see in my particular world of wanting to play this magic to be prevalent. It'll probably be something people are afraid of. Um, and I will use the, the chainmail wizard as a, as a basis for the magic. Um, but I may also start to work on some ideas um, and, um, hmm, and ways that essentially maybe some kind of uh, uh, ritual to, ritualistic type magic and things like that, that, uh, that, that creatures might use. But, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not feeling restricted that I have to give them spells, right? If you think about it, aha, this sounds like the next episode. So before I get into that, I'm just going to let you all go and we'll start uh, talking maybe a little bit about magic in Sword and Sorcery in the next episode.